Welcome to the Toncast. I'm your host, Tira Penn, with a special guest today. This is Todd Robert Anderson, a gentleman with whom I went to high school. Hi, Todd. Hi, how are you? Uh, yeah, I was trying to remember the chronology of, because we were talking to our mutual uh, friend, Jeff Davis, uh, about being in Bye Bye Birdie together. Yes. And you, you played the... My sister? Is that? I have no. I have no idea. Except I know that no. I was the. I was the female romantic lead, which I do not think was your sister. Oh no! I was. No. Uh, I was who, Rosie. Wait, who is the the fan? I can't remember how it works. There's the family. I was the little kid in the family, and I think the family, like the the TV producers, staying at their house or something. Right, so Zach Galvin and I were the TV producers, or Zach was the TV producer and I was the love interest. I don't actually remember how the pieces fit together very well because I didn't like it when I was doing it. It was a terrible <laughs> musical. <laughs> I can tell you that I played the role of Rosie. I can hear Zach Galvin singing a little bit of, you know, here you are my Rosie or whatever the, the name of the song is that he sings to her. And of course the terrible earworm, which we will not revisit because because <laughs> no, no, twice in twice in one decade in one year is plenty. I'm sure. Once in one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can thank Jeff for calling that back up. <laughs> Actually, um, it's, it's really not Jeff's fault. It's, it's, it, I guess within our circle here, it's really my fault, but I'm going to blame it on my mother-in-law because she brought the DVD for Bye Bye Birdie over to her house because she comes here every weekend um, because she's alone now um, and there's a pandemic. <laughs> so she comes here every weekend <laughs> and she brought, brought that movie. And I can't remember if it, we watched that you know, sometimes we would watch the movies back when we made those musicals in high school. But I like as soon as I heard that repetitive thing that we're talking about, I I I had such a uh, visceral twitchy reaction to it because <laughs> it's so terrible. It's so terrible, and it happens all the time. It's like every five minutes there are girls and boys sometimes singing that same refrain it's just it's just awful yeah so in the chronology of dover sherman high school musicals it went from the godspell year which was the 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 zenith of those musicals which is the first one i did and then guys and dolls and then bye bye birdie and then how to succeed in business without really trying. Those okay. were the four. Okay. So, so I can't exactly say that they got a little worse each year because I would put how to succeed in business ahead of Bye Bye Birdie. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but each successive year was just a descent into 
PG rated schlock that <laughs> even at the time <laughs> well, made my toes curl. <laughs> I get it. The, the junior, my junior and senior year, uh, which was, it was after how to succeed. That was my sophomore year. So we did Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat. And then we in which did, I think my sister played a role. I yes. Think. Yes. I think you're right. And then, uh, my senior year was 42nd street. And for, so for me, it started with this horrible uh, thing and I don't really like musicals. I never have, but you know, it's so desperate for attention that I was willing to do whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, but bye bye birdie. I remember I had fun cause I was a freshman, you know, and, uh, and, and everybody in the cast, all the upperclassmen were so cool to me, and the, which was not my experience in school, school hours. So I, for me, it was just an exciting social event. Um, but then each year, I thought the shows got better. And 42nd Street was definitely the best, best one I was in, in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You definitely had the, the reverse arc yeah, from Bye Bye Birdie to 42nd Street. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I got way luckier than you on that front. Well, we all have to have something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have two, I have two very, I, I wanted to bring this up early in your show because I have like two very vivid memories connected to you as far as my pop culture um, history uh, at that age, the, the coming of age years, uh, developmental years, and people would hang out. I've, and correct me if I'm wrong, because my memory is terrible, but I feel like a bunch of times I would just wind up at your house. Somebody would go. Yeah, we did that. We we had parties and stuff at my house. My mine was definitely a party house, but like a party house for respectable theater geeks. Uh-huh. Not uh -huh. the other kind of party house. Oh yeah. And there were there were always movies. Always. Yeah. And then like sometimes I would wind up there. It wasn't even like a nighttime thing. Sometimes I'd wind up there in the afternoon because someone would say we're going over to Terrace. And I'd be like, okay, cool. And <laughs> and one time, and I'm pretty sure it was like, you know, the afternoon. It was still daylight out. And uh and so and I don't remember who this was, but I feel like that it was the same guy who was probably a junior uh, or senior when I was a, a freshman. I'm guessing when I was a freshman, he, I'm guessing he was in your class probably. Um, but he, he was the one who told me to watch Clockwork Orange at your house, said it was a super cool movie and would blow my mind. And I got right up and it, so it was on and I went and I watched and I got up to the rape scene in the film <laughs> and became so disturbed that I, I had to leave the screening and go into another room. And then I became frightened of this person because he thought this movie was cool. <laughs> I was, I found it horrifying. I don't know who that was. Now, I don't know who the person was. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was one of two people. Um, if it was somebody very tall and threatening, it was my high school boyfriend who was a few years older than I was, he would have been a, a senior when I was a freshman, which means he would have been considerably older than you. 
and he definitely loved that movie. The okay. other possibility is Ned is Ned Shoemaker, who also was a frequent flyer at those parties and had similar sort of off kilter tastes. Yeah. If it was Ned, I would have remembered Ned because I have so many memories of him. And the one girl I dated in high school was his sister. Um, so uh-huh. I'm guessing, I'm guessing it's your boyfriend who is much older. That makes sense. Cause I don't even know if I knew him from, from school. He was just a guy I knew from you. Now, so, so the question is, is he the guy that drove me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show for the first time? At- also not impossible, although it would have had to have been in my presence, if that's the case. Um, a bunch of us did a Rocky Horror Picture Show floor show, including Ned, when we were in high school at the Natick Flick. Remember the Natick Flick? Yeah, it's like, it was like a twin theater, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, where I also happened to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as it turns out. But um, that's where I saw it, Roxanne, it, starring Steve Martin and and Bull Durham, with Kevin Costner. Yeah. So again, possible that my high school boyfriend would have driven you along with me, but he was—I mean, he was a, an adult person. Uh, at that time and didn't do a lot of chauffeuring of my high school friends. Maybe well, now then, and then. Maybe it was somebody else. Uh, maybe it was Ned who took me to it. I, I can't remember. I just remember going to see it and, and <laughs> being like, what is this? Uh. <laughs> but yeah, Ned, Ned and I were in the floor show for the Rocky Horror Picture. Yeah. Uh, you, you went out on me again. Uh, that, I don't know, man. Okay. Yeah. So Ned, Ned and I were the people from DS. Everybody else was from Framingham or Natick. I can't remember how we got hooked up with that. Um, but we did it for a few months. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I remember, um, and throwing toast and stuff like that. And then, and then because, and I saw, I saw you guys doing that, I think twice when you were doing it. And because of that experience, when people invited me to go see a Rocky Horror Picture Show midnight show in New York City when I went to college, uh, I I went and wow, it was is much different in New York City than it was uh, in a small town like Natick. I can only imagine. I mean, you know, I used to go in every once in a while to Cambridge when they still showed it in Harvard Square. You know, before before that. And even that, you know, the the coordination of the toast throwing was was much better. <laughs> I mean, it's very important to throw the toast all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I had so many. I mean, there's, you know, because of what Rocky Horror Picture Show is. I mean, I it wasn't until I got to New York City that I was exposed to uh, the scene, the the you know, they were, we were calling them drag queens back then, but there were a lot of transgender people involved in that, that show. So I, I, Rocky Horror opened my mind to a lot of things via you and Natick and then seeing it in New York and then, and then doing a drag queen pageant in New York city at NYU. Uh, All of these experiences (laughs) together, like really changed my perspective on, on, on uh, 
sexuality and gender and all that stuff before it was even, you know, way before the wokeness of everybody had started to happen. Um, but, it, you know, it was also uh, jarring a lot of times. No, I never felt jarred. <laughs> well, I have, for, a, I have, a, I was born 40 years old, so it's. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, it just. This, it, little, this, this little picture of me from when I was, I, it was before we moved to Sherborne. Uh, so we were living in Dorchester. So I was between the ages of eight and 10. And there's a little picture of me standing in the backyard of this triple decker where we lived, where we were the, the live-in landlords, wearing a little tweed suit, a little tweed skirt suit, and a shirt with horses on it, and holding my lunchbox in front of me like a briefcase, and scowling at the camera like, what the hell are you doing, lady? I got to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an old soul, I guess. Uh, you you were like born uh, uh, a forty year old woman in a child's body. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. So what do you? What I, do I you... still have most of the same wardrobe, <laughs> <laughs> just bigger. <laughs> so, so so what are you? What do you do? What what is what has your adulthood been like? What what have you done with it? Uh, well stuff. I mean, I'm a busy person. I was in radio. In fact, I, I just officially this week have left radio after about 17 years, either as a career or as a volunteer. Um, right. I, I, I'm doing a job I'm completely unqualified for. I'm the director of planning and development for the town in which I live. I've done that for about a year now. I talked my way into that position and now I will never leave. Um, I got a band. I play some sports. I stopped being an actor as soon as I realized how bad I was at it. I gave that a try for a while. <laughs> it took me way longer than it should have. <laughs> why, wait, why, why did you decide that you're not good enough to be an actor? What, what, what happened? I have a high level of self-awareness and observed how not good I was. <laughs> I said, wow, I should stop continuing with this because it's not going to go anywhere. I mean, it, it's, I mean, everybody's super critical of themselves, which I understand. Um, but I don't know. I'm pretty cold eyed about stuff. Like I know I'm a good singer and I have a band and we're working on our record right now. Um, you know, and whatever whatever feelings of inadequacy I may have compared to other singers, occasionally, it's not because I don't think I have a quality instrument. However, I was a piss poor actor. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, like what? It was, it was just it was just never going to go anywhere. <laughs> just like when you say piss poor actor, it's like, do I mean, could you not remember lines or? Oh no, quite quite the opposite. I, I, my mind is a steel trap. I did uh, Merrily We Roll Along in Chicago. I understudied every single role. I had everybody's blocking. I had everybody's lines. I had, and I didn't try. <laughs> I just, so my only talent as an actor, in fact, was that I could always remember all the lines and all the blocking and knew mm -hmm. all the parts in the songs when we did musicals. 
Um, but I was not convincing ever <laughs> as a mm-hmm. character. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I had ever had the right director or the right role, sometimes I think I, I would come out of retirement to do, you know, certain musicals or certain plays. Like I would give Martha from uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf a try. I'd give that a go. Cause I wouldn't really be acting. <laughs> I'd just be <laughs> drunk and discontent. I mean, you know, how hard could that be? <laughs> it's, not, it's not that hard. I uh, I did a, a scene from that in my senior year in high school with uh, <laughs> with Julia Tizano, which is ridiculous to have two <laughs> high school kids doing that show. But I honestly I did thought that was... in one of Ricky Lombardo's classes too. I know oh, that did. I did. Oh wow! As okay. Martha, for sure. Uh, yeah. That, that's that's hilarious i yeah i actually it was as far as what i did in high school it was one of my uh i thought it was one of the better things i did but nobody well, saw the material it elevate class. yeah that's true that's true you know i'd come i'd, I'd give medea a try again there's no acting mm-hmm. <laughs> just be a you know a person willing to kill children sign <laughs> me up i'm there <laughs> Yeah, isn't it nice uh, to play uh, monsters? It's my favorite thing. Yeah. I, always, I always tell people, you know, when I spend the day playing a, a complete jerk, it always feels good at the end of the day because everybody's, you know, I'm done and everybody thanks me and tells me I did a great job at being an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe I just never found my niche. Yeah, you didn't give yourself a chance. I just, I wonder, like, when people say say that, like, oh, I, I, I'm a terrible actor. Because given, I see so many, um, you know, do-it-yourself backyard production movies on streaming services, especially now with the pandemic. It's the stuff I'm going through is just intensely bad, and I just wonder, like, so many of these actors are they're genuinely bad. I mean, they're genuinely bad like across an entire cast of a movie will be stilted like they've never even spoken before let alone acted so it is it is baffling and you know i watch i watch a lot of movies as as i'm sure you do and but just at every level like i i'm i'm kind of baffled by american acting in general like i don't think americans are actors I think Americans, even the good American actors, are playing themselves oh, inside yeah. a character, as opposed to when you see sort of, and it, it tends to be a British thing, but it's not just a British thing. And there have been a couple of American actors who have embodied this other thing, which is that you're not playing a a version of yourself who happens to be in this position, but but you are you are that you are that embodied character. It's mm-hmm. just a different kind of acting, and I. It sometimes make me what makes me wonder if there are any good American actors. But then there are obviously, and you can identify them and name them and and recognize it when you see it. But yeah. Yeah. Well, there's. It's. I. I think it's like there's a lot of contributing factors to that. I think one contributing factor is uh, the uh, the way the Stanislavski method is taught in America, and uh, the way the group theater influenced 
acting and how it works. Um, and I think it can be, it, it, it can be so, um, I don't know, weirdly self-involved, you know, it's, it's, it's taking your personal experience and putting it into the character. And that's why you see so like so many people seem like they're just playing themselves and with different names from movie to movie. Yeah. That's a good word for, I mean, it's like, it's entirely self-involved, which is, you know, sometimes effective. And sometimes I say, Oh, look, there's another American actor. You know, and you can almost name the the ones who defy that. Um, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman was absolutely incandescent, right? When he would act, it just it disappeared into what he was doing. And you didn't have that sense of it. This is Philip Seymour Hoffman just doing his shtick, no matter how good his shtick is. Um, well, and there have been a couple more. Like, I think Jeffrey Wright gets there. Yeah, he, he, he can. Well, th- they're out there. The thing is... I mean, I think so much, I had a friend, you know, cause I'm forever frustrated with my career. It's just, it's just how acting careers work for most, most actors. Uh, but one time he said, you know, you mean maybe your problem is you're just too good because so many, like he, he, we were talking about various comedic actors who work all the time. And he's like, well, they work all the time because they do one thing. That's it. That's all they do. You know, TJ Miller is the same in every movie and his comedic cadence is the same in every movie. I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's horrible to watch. I'm just saying it's the same in every movie. And I've never been that. I've never had that comic hook thing. Um, so you know, I, I, I often wonder if I'd have more success if I had less range, if that makes sense. Well, I, I will say that when I was in at Boston Conservatory in theater school, I had some acting teacher tell me I was too smart. I think that's the same thing. I think that's like, it's just not, you can't have too much range. You can't be too smart. It's that you're not fitting the parameters that are expected. Now, in my case, I also happens not to be very good, <laughs> but, but you know, that's, that's a different problem <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was, that was not being addressed at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, I, it is true that if you're an actor and you're super cerebral, it can get in your way because acting is, is reactive and emotional. And the, if you overthink it, you can, you can stop the good stuff from happening. It's sort of a, I, I have to compartmentalize it. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think that's not unrelated to why I'm not a particularly good actor is that I'm, I'm emotionally dead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to feel something, wouldn't you? <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe and my, or, my reaction to almost everything in almost every situation is equanimity. So I don't think that really builds a lot of dramatic tension. <laughs> no, but you could, you could be the next dirty Harry. I mean, why, why not? Perhaps, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to have any emotions. You just shoot people in the, <laughs> well, in the dirty Harry. Movies. They haven't, they haven't, they haven't offered me that role. <laughs> <laughs> 
No. I interviewed his son. I interviewed his son Kyle as one of the first uh, on-air interviews that I ever did in my in my old radio job. He was one of the most difficult interviews. It was I was practically brand new at it. I'd only done one or two more, one or two additional before he came in. It was a last-minute thing that we set up, and it was the day after his gig, right? So most guys come in. And they've got a gig in a day or two, or they're hawking a record, or they've got something they really want to get off their chest to encourage you to participate. This guy didn't have that. He was like, I played my show last night. I mean, my agent set this up. He's a nice enough guy, but Mm -hmm. totally deadpan the whole time. (laughs) answers, And like, you don't want to fall back on, hey, let's talk about your dad, (laughs) right? You don't want to be that guy, which I'm sure he gets all the time. It was it was one of the longest hours of my life. Was he, is he a musician? I don't even know who Kyle Eastwood is. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a, a jazz bass player. I think he mostly lives in France. I mean, he splits his time between LA and France because his wife is French, I think. Um, oh. Nice guy. You know, he's probably in his late twenties, early thirties when I interviewed him. So that's over a decade ago. Um, you know, he's had a couple of moderately successful records. I think he plays mostly on, I think he gets more traction from smooth jazz stations, although he's not really smooth jazz, but it's that left coast sound. And, you know, he's decent. He's not going to go down. He's not the next Jocko. <laughs> he's not, he's did, not the next Marcus Miller, but, you know, he, competent. Did he, I mean, obviously he takes after his father if he's a jazz musician. Um, and looks a lot like him too, which I'm which sure he also gets all the time. Yeah. yeah. So does uh, Scott Eastwood, the the actor Eastwood, um, young one. I did not even know there was another one. Yeah, he was in uh, the sequel to Pacific Rim. Uh, ah, which which strangely I have seen. Yeah. Yeah, and you've probably forgotten about Scott Eastwood. <laughs> you probably forgot Indeed about so. him before the movie was over. It wasn't the best. But, yeah, he, he looks unbelievably like him. But I, he's like got like a, a Liv Tyler-esque story because I think he was Clint Eastwood's son that maybe Clint Eastwood wasn't quite aware of right away. Uh, uh, same way Liv Tyler was with Steve Tyler. She, like... They didn't meet. See, if I had see. known that 10 years ago, I would have had something else to talk about with Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What, what's the, with this Scott fella? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, and I guess he also takes after his dad in that he's not very verbal, obviously. Oh, if God. He's it was only giving so you one brutal. of the answers. Yeah. And, did, and so it, brutal. But it, on the upside, at no point, it sounds like at no point did he start monologuing towards an empty chair. Indeed so. Well, there was no empty chair in the room, so that helped. Uh, and this was <laughs> before. This was, this was well before. Um, I think still during, during Bush two years, actually. Uh-huh. Maybe. Maybe That's, near the end of the Bush two years. It's an important tip for anyone who's going to interview in Eastwood. Just make sure there's no empty chairs. You've got to clear all the extra chairs. Yeah, I mean, I have done a lot of musician interviews in the last, whatever, 17 years. Um, most of them were pretty good. Some of them were 
bizarro world. But then ones ones where they come in and they say nothing are among the hardest. Uh huh. Because yeah, all I your would... good stuff comes when you're doing stuff like this. When actually, when the mic is off and you're listening to the records and you're, hey, tell me about it, and then you go and you take the best stuff when you go back on the mic. And um, there, there was a certain, not necessarily caliber, but a, a certain stripe of artists who would come in there. Like if we had booked a concert and they were doing the promo that you could just tell they were there because their agent made them go. I'm going to talk about the one sheet. I'm going to talk about the songs on the record. I'm not going to talk to you when the mic is off. So that leaves the interviewer with no question material Mm -hmm. when you go back on mic. I see. So always, always difficult. If somebody's just fulfilling contractual obligations or whatever, and they don't want to be there, they're not really going to talk to you except when you go on mic. Yeah, yeah, and you know the essentially the same as a one sheet, right? This is what the record means to me. The very canned; those were always brutal. Mm. Um, some of the cuckoo ones were fun. Rich, I I interviewed Richie Havens, uh, who I don't know if he was high as a kite when he was in there. Certainly, the chances were high, <laughs> but totally stream of consciousness. Just trying to follow where he was going was. I don't even remember any of the topics. Well, he was talking about the turquoise jewelry that he used to wear that I remember um, and how people would just give it to him and stuff. I, I, I don't remember much of the rest of it because it was so long ago and it was so hard to follow. I just remember my feeling of being totally at sea. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what to do here. I'm interviewing Richie Havens on a jazz show and we're talking about, I don't know what. <laughs> Yeah, I would imagine. How many years were you interviewing people on the radio? Uh, well, let's see. So I was in radio from 2003 to 2010, where it was my actual job. And of that, probably five of those years were uh, primarily on air as opposed to just being an occasional sub. So I had a local interest program that ran Monday through Friday, one to two o'clock time slot. And in that time slot, I would often book artists coming through. So I've, I, mean, I couldn't even tell you how many artist interviews I've done, you know, and at every level people just start now, you know, big you know, marquee jazz acts for whatever that means to the rest of the world, which I will tell you is not much. <laughs> um, you know, some people that some people have heard of, like Richie Havens or um, Maria Moldauer, who is one of those not interested in talking about anything that wasn't on the one sheet. Um, Fathead Newman. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and then, like I say, people that people in jazz would be like, ooh, really? Like Marcus Miller. I interviewed Marcus Miller, which was, you know, he, so he's a big deal, but to me and the people I know and <laughs> but you, you get think, outside. Do you think it would have been easier if your specialty was like stand up comics who were coming through town? Oh God, I would have killed myself. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why are they difficult? It may or may not surprise you to know that I have very little interest in comedy <laughs> as a field. I mean, there was a time when it was like kind of cool and kind of interesting, but I feel like that moment was here and gone in a flash. 
and every once in a while I'll, I'll hear a comment and go, oh, that person is, is actually genuinely funny, but I never want to hear them again, ever. You mean you don't want to hear a second, like if they have an hour-long special, you don't want to tune in for another one if you liked it? Yeah, kind of. Like, I, just, I, I feel like the, the level of the, of the material would have to be so good and so good. And I can't think of anybody except maybe Tignataro whose show was so unique and extraordinary. But at some point that crosses the, bo- the, the boundary from being stand-up comedy to being monologue theater, at which point it be- starts to become more interesting again. But like mm. just getting up and telling jokes, just kill me. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and like, I uh, have friends who are comics and, uh, you know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, it depends on the comic. But, you know, like, like John Mulaney doesn't do it for you? Yeah. 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 I like that guy a lot, but yeah, I, I mean, if you're not into stand, my wife can't watch stand up in general because it gives her um, like sweaty palms. She gets uh, stage fright <laughs> on behalf of all stand up comics. So she won't oh, watch see. it unless I've vetted the hour. You know, it's, it, it, I mean, she's not going to go to a club to see stand up. It, it makes her too, uh, it's too anxiety provoking for her and she doesn't like, she feels bad for comics who aren't doing well. Uh, and at the same time is mad at them for not doing well, <laughs> you know? So she just, she doesn't like it. And I, I can, I can understand that, but I was always fascinated with stand-up comedy and I dabbled in it for a while. Uh, that was something that I decided I wasn't very good at. So I stopped doing it. And I also, there were, I had a lot of issues with a lot of managers and, other comics that I didn't get along with. So that was part of it too, was just the scene in New York at the time, it's early nineties. Uh, you know, I soured on it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's funny. So I identify you very closely with comedy in the, in the context of comic acting. And that goes all the way back to high school, right? <laughs> and, you know, as, as being a natural fit for you, uh, Obviously not for me. You want one, first of all, has to be funny, <laughs> which I never was. Wry, perhaps. <laughs> but <yeah. laughs> but f- funny is, well, I mean, you're making me laugh. So there's got to be something going on. Maybe you're accidentally funny. It's different to, to craft funniness, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I I have nothing but respect for the people who can in fact do that, but certainly not moved to it. And almost never do I seek it out. Like I don't, you know, I don't watch sitcoms. I don't watch comedy films very, very rarely. I could probably count on one hand, the number of films that could be legitimately called comedies that I would go back to. Right. But do you ever try like new comedy movies? Because I mean, that's you know, a comedy movie. As many stand-ups are in them, there it's a different ball of wax than just stand-up comedy. Do you do you watch studio? Do you watch any? Did you watch Palm Springs on on Netflix or Hulu or whatever it was? I did not. I did not. Uh, pretty much my my watching is limited to um, sci-fi epics. Uh, the occasional uh, Asian horror film, and um, what else do I have in here? Let me look at my. 
Yeah, that's about it, actually. So, so your your two genres. Wuxia, I watch. I watch Wuxia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you like Asian horror movies, and you said uh, epic sci-fi. So you're not you're not going to hassle with like a Pandorum, you know, or it, you've got it. It's got to be. No, I seem to recall that we had uh, quite an animated debate over the relative virtues of uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah, yeah. Of which I was a fan and you were not. Nope, I was not. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, I I have seen it again um, because you know a number of my friends are like, even if you don't like it, you got to admit it's real pretty. And I I do think it is real pretty. Uh, and I I watched it again to see if maybe I was my initial thing was because of you know having expectations set too high or whatever. Or it being like a kind of beloved, because I love Blade Runner, it being a beloved thing that maybe shouldn't have had a sequel. Um, and yeah, I still found it uh, too slow. It was too slow for me. It does drag a bit. I'll grant you that. And Jared Leto, either because he's incapable of landing roles where his presence is not completely unfathomable. <laughs> <laughs> or, or whatever. Jared Leto's character, the motivations, the reason it was written in, completely unfathomable. Um, but even in the, and I don't mind a slow movie, uh, even in the slowness, like that opening scene uh, where Ryan Gosling and Dave Bautista are having that confrontation, that sort of slow motion confrontation. I thought that was extraordinarily well done. And the uh, the visual with the overlay with the um, the artificial girl and the and the the android hooker that was a, a tremendous scene. I, I have come to realize that what I like most about movies is uh, at least movies uh, in that genre, right? That epic sci-fi genre, and I'll lump some comic book movies into that. Um, is that I for some reason find it really satisfying to watch a movie that makes it clear how much humanity is a failure and how we <laughs> fail our creations. Sure, sure, sure. So you like, like a, you like an ex machina situation. I actually haven't seen ex machina, so I, I can't say, um, I would rec if that's your thing, I would definitely recommend that. Um, very disturbing. Um, and then there's another movie uh, starring, which is even, to me, it's even more disturbing than Ex Machina, uh, called Splice. I haven't uh, seen that one either. Uh, I, I do live in the deep suburbs, which means it's hard to see things in theaters unless we go all out of our way. And uh, I also apparently live in a cave. I don't have any of the streaming services, so I, you know, I watch things catch as catch can. But... Um, no, like what was a good, oh, I was drunkenly weeping over AI again recently because it comes up on telly a lot, which, <laughs> really? which I cannot watch without weeping openly every single freaking time. Are you, are you crying because of the movie or are you just sad that Kubrick died before he could finish it and it turned into a cheesy Spielberg film? <laughs> well, 
<laughs> There's a lot to both. I, but no, I, I, I think, again, it is such a clear and I think probably reasonably accurate depiction of how we fail everything that we make. <laughs> sure. How we fail humans, how we fail ch- our, our children, how we will inevitably fail any kind of sympathetic artificial life form which we create. We will fail at it. We will make slaves and we will, you know, we are terrible. And there is something very satisfying to me about all of that. Yeah, I get it. Um, do you watch the, the Westworld show on, on HBO? I haven't seen Westworld. I'm trying um, not to get sucked into too many telly shows because you know yeah yeah well life goes I mean, away but th- that's what that show is about so i would imagine you might respond to it yeah it, it it looked really interesting to me and i just never got around to committing to the time to watch it yeah i watched the first season it was it got too rapey for me I did hear that as well, but that's like the HBO MO, right? You cannot have a series unless it's a little rapey. I guess. I mean, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, I never, I I mean, I didn't really watch Game of Thrones. I tried the first episode or two and it just wasn't, it didn't. I was coming off of Spartacus off on stars, which is just over the top, crazy gore uh, and violence and backstabbings and all that stuff. So Game of Thrones was a little too uh, too slow and pretty for me. <laughs> I think we got three or four seasons in on Game of Thrones. Four, I think. It was good, you know. Um, but it didn't hold my interest enough to go to season five. Well, yeah. I, that's happened to me with a lot of shows. And I still have... Like on my various streaming services, I have lists of shows that I watched like four of the five seasons and I've just never returned for the final season of like Bates Motel. I keep going, I should watch that. I remember liking that show. But there's a thing that happens like when you, when it naturally, like my favorite example of this for me was The Sopranos which, you know, the first season I was blown away and the second season I was very entertained. And then the third season I was, I started forgetting to watch it every week. That, Cause this was back, you know, before there was. Yeah. I had, I had similar experience with Soprano. I didn't come in right at the beginning. I probably came in season two or three and, and same thing really dug it. You know, of course at the time it was, it still had a certain freshness cause there weren't, there wasn't such a saturation, but, um, I certainly didn't see the last season and I couldn't tell you what season I finally lost interest, but it, there is a sameness, right? H- how do you get away from the sameness and something that's going on that long? Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, yeah. For me with that show, it was, I, I found Tony S- Soprano specifically like, to be such a volatile character. And that's why it was interesting because he was scary, but you saw his human side and all that stuff. But then I think part of the reason is, it just seems like he should have been shot dead like before the second season was over, you know, because he was so volatile. So then when you get, when that, when that tension, it becomes apparent because you have an intellect that they're not going to kill Tony Soprano anytime soon, 
then that tension that you get in gangster movies, like, you know, Goodfellas or the Godfather, that's just there because death is just in the air. Um, and you're waiting for it to happen, you know? Uh, and, and I think Sopranos just, for me, it just ran out of that because he, he, he should have been killed way earlier. Well, that I, and also, and I don't know if this is because I'm partly an Italian person and I, I, I just I, I find that trope, the 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 mafia trope, again, mm. re, even when it's it's super well done and it's been super well done a lot of times, it's still the same frickin' movie. It's still the same story. It's just with with this slight nuance, different look at it maybe, and the performances are great, or the script is interesting because it was possibly partially based on something real or not real. It's the same story. And the other thing about that, which I think is more on the, it's because I'm partly an Italian person, is the the mythology around it that devolves into like my cousins and uncles. Like, they all want to be that. Yeah, they want not understanding that that is a a, a ridiculous thing to aspire to, and it's that swagger and that machismo and all that crap. Uh, I've been over that since I was eight years old, right? right. (laughs) You know, so as much as some of those movies, you know, the the classic ones, you can talk about Godfather. I've actually never liked Goodfellas, but I understand that it is a good movie. Um, Please. <laughs> yeah, I get the it. Only one, the only one that's like a variation on the theme that I really like, and it's not actually a mafia movie, is Copland, which is that same trope, but on the other side, and uh, and Stallone in that case, you know, making himself fat and, and actually really coming outside himself. Yeah. I think that's one of the better examples of that style of movie because it's it's flipped on its head. Yeah. You know who else had put on a lot of weight for that movie was Ray Liotta. And that was oh yeah yeah yeah. I think that was the first time I saw the thick version of Ray Liotta, and 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 the reason he was also big in that movie is he was originally cast as the lead, so he had gained weight to play the role that Stallone played. Interesting. They, I did not know that. I, I guess Ray Liotta just I, I don't know I don't know what the politics were behind the thing, but. I, yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, but, you know, I always, I question, you know, when they say, ever since John Travolta, quote unquote, gained weight for Pulp Fiction, I've, I, I, I question that because I don't know that he's, he's lost all that weight. <laughs> since <Pulp Fiction. laughs> well, just because you gained it doesn't mean you went back and lost yeah. it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, like at least Christian did Bale. Shows- to, to go back to his, uh, yeah, yeah, not everybody's Christian Bale. Uh, Stallone did choose to go back to his uh, life as an aging action hero, but um, yeah, he got you know, he, he got back Travolta on the road. Not yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that Christian. In fact, I think I own a copy on DVD of that Christian Bale movie where he lost like the eighty pounds and almost went into kidney failure. The Machinist. Uh, the Machinist, which is an interesting movie too. Uh, not one that I feel like I need to watch a lot. Um, yeah. Well, but- for me, it was, it, it was, I could tell 
watching it, I was like, this is a well-made movie. This is, this is a, this is genuine art. This is, is, you know, an achievement. Uh, but I had such a hard time getting past Christian Bale's physical appearance. Cause I was worried about Christian Bale, not the actor, not the character the whole time. Cause he looked so emaciated. I couldn't get past it. Yeah, and he did almost go into kidney failure for that movie, I think, when he lost all that weight. Because he did it fast. He didn't just, like, decide a year ahead of time he was going to lose weight. <laughs> he did it, yeah. like, on a hunger strike. Yeah, he did. And but it, and then it looked like unhealthy thinness. It didn't look at all okay. It looked really bad. <laughs> but, you know, God bless him for being that dedicated. That's not something I would do. Yeah, well, I might try, <laughs> but I would fail. Uh, well, you know, I'd... I always say if if I I would absolutely become you know you know a Ryan Reynolds uh, body wise if a studio spent a million dollars to do it. <laughs> I'm not doing it by myself. <laughs> well, there's that as well. <laughs> I can't I can't afford it. It's like uh I don't know if you saw last year those pictures of uh Kamel Nanjiani. Did you see those? I did not. Cuz he's uh, he's doing a, some Marvel show or movie or something. Superhero thing. So he had to get in superhero shape. Um and he released these pictures and my first reaction was, well that's a hilarious photoshop joke, but it wasn't. It was, he was actually had a crazy ripped body, uh, which looks weird connected to Kamel Nanjiani's head because he's, <laughs> he's a, he's a funny, sweet guy. And he's, you know, always been a little soft, you know, so it just, it didn't look real. And, uh, you know, and I was like, well, that is an amazing achievement, but God bless Kamel Nanjiani for saying publicly, you gotta, you gotta know that a studio spent a million dollars for this to happen. It's not, I mean, like, I'm proud of my body achievement, but it, it's a million dollars. It's a million dollar body, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I wish Yeah, expectations, more, expectations. Yeah, I wish more stars, especially the superhero ones, would say that because it does create... I mean, being an actor, and I'm a guy, uh, I, I, I have body dysmorphia for sure. Um, and I can only imagine it's worse for women in this business. But when you're constantly comparing yourself to those, the you, you know those bazillion dollar actors, it it can be very frustrating. So it's nice to hear somebody go, "Look, it cost they spent a million dollars on this." So you know, if you had someone spending a million dollars to get your body like this, you'd do it too. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Of course, the, the whole issue of uh, extreme weight gain or loss brings up another movie that uh, you and I have argued about online, which is Joker, which I know you also discussed with Jeff Davis, <laughs> and which we also disagreed on. <laughs> well, Jeff is one of the only people I know who shares shares that viewpoint of Joker. I mean, I'm I like my entire family loves the movie Joker, and I, I just didn't, uh, maybe I just didn't get it. I don't know. I mean, love is uh, love is not the right word to apply to it, for sure. Um, you know, I first of all, and I think you'd actually do agree on this: the the acting of Joaquin Phoenix, the inhabitation of the role, 
I think you can't really question the craft. Oh, I, you know, yeah. as to as to whether the movie needed to be made for all of the reasons that you cited, I, I had I think not this argument with you, but maybe with Jeff, um, that if we all sit around loving Fight Club, it's the same movie as Fight Club. It is exactly the same movie, and it's got the same core flaw, which is that you are not supposed to actually love that character that cause, causes all the trouble, except the movie spends all that time getting you invested in that character's point of view. It's exactly the same flaw, but people who, and I've heard several people who have had that same criticism of Joker about how it's, you know, incel porn, which it is, which it is. Uh, turn around and say, no, 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 it's not the same as Fight Club at all. Fight Club was ironic. <laughs> it's ironic oh, okay. to you and me, but it's still incel porn to the people who are going to take that as a, as a life goal, right? So, you know, and, and some of the same statements can be made about the quality of the acting job and that, you know, it's funnier. The only thing you can really say about Fight Club is that it's funnier, and, and in its funniness, in some ways, I actually think it's a more dangerous movie because as soon as you laugh at something, it disarms it, right? Mm. Well, that's like the whole, that's like part of the whole thing about the, those nut jobs, those Pepe the Frog nut jobs, right? It's all supposed to be sardonic and a joke and you can't take it seriously in this. And in the meantime, they're going around, you know, plotting armed takeovers, <laughs> I know. Right. And it and it hides in that veneer of humor and irony. So there's none of that in Joker. It is just flat out. This is an ugly situation, which is somehow completely credible. Mm. Right. You can you can completely imagine this set of circumstances occurring and you do have sympathy for the character because he is obviously, you know, beaten on and, and had terrible parenting. And, um, but at no point are you really meant to laugh at what he's doing. Whereas you're meant to laugh at what Tyler Durden is doing the whole time. Isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was not a big fan of fight club either, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> so much of, my uh, distaste for Joker, the movie, I mean, so much of it, it was, I, I thought it was a very derivative movie. Um, it and, is. I, I would agree with you on that for sure. Um, and, and the movies it's derivative of are movies that, um, you know, really affected me, specifically Scorsese's movies, The King of Comedy and Taxi Driver. Um, uh, and those those two are movies that I wouldn't. It's hard, you're hard pressed to say I love that movie because they're dark and disturbing and and weird. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't think. I mean, incel porn is such a new concept. I don't know if those. I guess you could call those movies incel porn too, because you know people can watch them on video and fantasize about being whatever that is. I guess. Um, it's just, uh, you know, Joker, I was just, I felt like it just took stuff that was already there. And yeah, great performance from Joaquin Phoenix. Absolutely. The acting in the movie is great. Um, and it, there's a lot about the movie that looks great. 
Um, but I, I just, it, it left me hollow inside and not the way I think it was trying to make me feel hollow inside. <laughs> that makes sense. You know, you know what your problem is, Todd, is that you didn't start off hollow inside the way I did. If you did. <laughs> <laughs> if, yeah, maybe that's. It would the, make much more I'm, sense. I'm approaching these movies the wrong way. I'm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's true. I, I just, I'm, I'm also not, I know people who are aggressively contrarian, like that's how their personalities are defined or their, their psychological quirks are built. Um, I cinematically, I'm, I, I tend to be contrarian purely accidentally because when I go into the movies, I'm just going to be entertained. Ultimately, you can move me, you can make me laugh, you can do whatever. That's what I'm going for. Uh, and sometimes the movies that everybody says is great, you know, Titanic, Avatar at the time. I'm like, what? What is? Oh everybody, God! What are we talking? What, what are we does every, anybody see in those? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't get it. But I, like, I saw the the Birds of Prey. Harley Quinn, blah, 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 subtitle movie, which everybody hated and tanked. And I was totally entertained by it. I, I had a great time. I, I was, was like, totally entertained by that as well. I, I, in fact, I went home and I, I think I, I thumb typed on my little phone. Finally, DC makes a movie that doesn't make me want to cry in anger. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was fun. And it was, uh, yeah. It, and it, it put the, for me, it put the comic book in the comic book movie. It had that comic book flair to it, which Joker was like, you're taking comic book intellectual property and then you're jamming it into an old Scorsese movie from the 1970s. And that's just like, I don't get why that's, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty consistent with some of the graphic novels. I mean, if you, if you're that kind of fanboy or fangirl, which. Well, which one was flirt, it? I mean, which I'm, I flirt with. I, well, part of it was the killing joke, but not really, because that's more some of the Nolan movies. Um, but the, some of the backstory, I think uh, they, they lifted out of killing joke, the Arthur Fleck being the failed stand-up comic. Yeah, I remember I did read the killing joke and I've seen the animated version uh, of that. Like, There's another one too, um, the title of which escapes me, which which is really more of that noir side than sort of the, the the colorful manic joker right um i like i remember reading one and i think it might have been it might have been one that whoever did the illustrations for neil gaiman's books did illustrations for this one and it was set in arkham and it was the joker's book and that was actually one of the most disturbing graphic novels I have ever seen. Like I couldn't even actually get all the way through. It was so just raw. Uh. Um, so more in that you can, you can just tell that that's what, that's the, the feeling they were going after from the comic book. So I would say, you know, it, it's derivative of the, of those movies. I wouldn't disagree, but not at all inconsistent with a whole arm of that character story arc. I get you. I guess. I guess maybe I. I. I have. I, I have an issue with that direction for Joker. It's sort of like. 
It's like when they take a, a, a character from a horror franchise and then and they give you too much backstory. Like you take Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street, I think is one of the scariest movies ever made. You take that, you know, there's a bunch of sequels and then they do a remake and then the, in the remake, there's so much backstory explaining to you Freddy Krueger himself when he was a child was abused and, and, and this happened in an asylum. And it's like all this, and it takes away, it takes away what's scary about the character. And, and I guess the Joker I like is the Joker who will, who will give you a sad monologue about his sad childhood in one scene and then give you another monologue about why he's that way in the, in another scene. And they're completely inconsistent because he's full of shit. And the whole thing the Joker's about is mayhem. He's just a crazy guy who wants to wreck everything. And, uh, and I, I think given it which, too much Which backstory, I also love. I also love that interpretation, right? That in, I mean, you're talking about the Heath Ledger, um, mm-hmm. the, the difference in monologues. And that was an absolutely brilliant, uh, interpretation and to go back to our friend Jared Leto I actually don't even mind that one I think that's a totally legitimate take I think it was well designed I think it was a, a an interesting departure um, I, I like all of those takes mm-hmm. because they're all a kind of mania um, but you know getting back to the most recent one Obviously, that fits in of a kind with everything I said. It's how we fail ourselves, right? It's how we we fail the people that we shouldn't fail. And I, I don't know why I gravitate to those, but I gravitate to them fairly regularly. Somehow, I manage to do so without myself, you know, falling for any of that. Well, the reason that it's incel porn, right? The the the, the wallowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least I don't think I wallow. Uh, you know, I, I think that's the key to to whether you appreciate them for what they're saying as opposed to what they're saying to you individually, right? Like the the the, the people who hang their hats on Tyler Durden being a, a role model or, yeah, see, they did it to Joker, I'm just like that. If you think it's speaking to you personally, that's a problem. If you think it's observational, <laughs> then maybe you can do something useful with that information. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, you just reminded me your sort of what the movies you gravitate towards made me think of a, a movie uh, starring uh, Michael Shannon uh, called Take Shelter. Did you ever see that? I have. I have not seen that. I I do like Michael Shannon. Something so weird about him yeah he's a he's a strange cat um but a good actor um and in this he's uh he's basically a doomsday prepper um against the wishes of his immediate family um because he's convinced that something's about to happen um it's a really cool movie i i recommend that you watch it given what you gravitate towards I'd be interested. Yeah, to I will definitely look for that. Yeah, it's good. It's very good. I don't know how I got this way. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how you got this way either. I don't. I don't know how I got this way. How does anyone get anyway? I don't. And now we're you know in a pandemic. I don't know how these things happen. I just deal with it. 
just roll with the punches. Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think we're fortunate to have gotten out of where we started off, right? You mean a small My sister town? Still live. Yeah. I mean, I mean, of course, I'm living and working in a small town now, but one to which I am am and will always be an outsider, right? I'm always going to be a carpetbagger here. Mm-hmm. But, um, but Tasha still lives there. Well, she's in Dover now, but she's lived in Sherbourne almost the entire time with her kids going there, and it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same. That's what, that's what, yeah, that's what a lot of money will buy you is a place that doesn't change, I guess. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad I got out. I'm glad I got out of the state, actually. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. I, going from Massachusetts to New York City, I, I, I realized um, how, I don't know, pig-headed I was. Uh, 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 small-minded, prejudiced, um, all those things. For no reason, except that that was that there was nothing outside the town was small it was mostly white you know if not all white um and and just in that kind of sheltered environment there was so much that i didn't understand um and 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 massachusetts is also you know each state that you can live in is its own like kind of sheltered society in a way and uh, I, and Massachusetts ultimately, I think, is very a very segregated place. <laughs> and uh, I mean, maybe it's not now, uh, but well, no, it, it, that that is, I mean, that's a problem in a lot of places, and it and it's been a problem here. Well, I'm not actually technically in Massachusetts. I live just over the line in Connecticut, but um, same same difference. Mm. Uh, yeah, lack of diversity of population is, is now you're going to get my planner hat on is a problem in most states in at least parts of them. Um, I felt less that way when I lived in Chicago and I think people will also make that observation. Although Chicago itself has its own sort of levels of segregation, which are more centered around economic class, you know, Mm -hmm. the South side and the North side near the twain shall meet. The North side is very diverse but it's also very diverse in solely in an economic, you know, if, if you have some money, you live on the North side. If you don't right. have any money, it's not diverse because it's all Brown people and they're all Brown poor people. And that's generational. So that is a problem, but the city as a whole is very diverse. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. I, I mean, lack of, lack of diversity of experience is a problem, but I don't think it's inherently damning. Like we all grew up there and all of the people that I knew um, either evolved out of their shortcomings or never really had that particular set of shortcomings. And I could look around and identify those who did for sure. But like, I would never have thought of you as close minded as a kid, mm-hmm. you know, and well, I the, guess, the I guess I wasn't. we hung around with the, the Crolax and the, Mm-hmm. And the panics and the decosts and Zach Galvin and you know these are not people that I looked around and and said they are small minded and and they all no, went absolutely. on to to do things that I think were very um, expansive. You can't help where you 
started. It's just what you do with it. But I wouldn't want to live in that environment. No, actually, you could make the argument that I currently live in one that's worse. But um. <laughs> well, and I could say the same thing about me, where I moved a few years ago, um, uh, it, for different reasons. Um, I, I think. I mean, I, I don't harbor any ill will towards Massachusetts. Um, I still think it's a very pretty place, and uh, there are absolutely great people there. Um, I'm, I'm just glad I got out. I'm, I'm glad I saw more, you know, of this country than that. Um, and, and, uh, I did love living in Chicago. I never, never lived in Chicago. I've I've only visited. Oh, it was, well, and we're talking about the early nineties. So I, I, I cannot speak to current conditions on the ground, but as it is frozen in amber in my brain, um, it was a fantastic to, place to be in your early to mid twenties, you know, 24 hour city, but much more physically manageable than New York. Mm-hmm. Um, plenty of neighborhoods where you can see skylight. Uh, you know, the, the, the arts and culture scene very close to as robust as New York. Um, but without the New York price tag, I mean, I live, I had moved from the Fenway in Boston and now I'm going to date myself by how cheap rents were in general. So I had a a studio apartment in the Fenway for like four seventy five a month. So this was in 1993, four moved to Chicago and the first apartment I had was a shithole, but in in a terrible, dangerous neighborhood. But the second one that I moved into um, was, you know, a three room apartment for five hundred dollars a month, and I could walk back. And I probably shouldn't have, but I could and did frequently walk back and forth, drunk in the middle of the night in my little high heels back from gigs I had at gay bars, and I never felt unsafe, and it was very young and vibrant and there was a good sports scene and it, you know, it, it had all the things that you associate with New York and to a lesser extent Boston, but without the price tag at that time, it's probably totally different now. Yeah. Um, yeah but it was sure a fantastic is. place to spend my twenties. Yeah. Yeah. My father-in-law was uh, from Chicago. He, he loved it. I often wonder why I came back, but that was like 25 years ago. So I should probably stop wondering. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been uh, nice talking to you. Do you, do you wrap up your show or does it, how does it end? Uh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) How, how, how do we end? I mean, you know, I could, I I could sing, but then you'd cry. (laughs) How how would you, how, if it was, uh, if it was your radio show, how would, how do you end that? How did you end your radio show? Oh, uh, well, I would end on a song that would take us out (laughs) so that I didn't have to talk to anybody again, (laughs) especially for the last nine years. Cause I was, I, my shift was done at midnight. I'd put that last tune on and get the hell out of Dodge. (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess we'll just, I guess you could just throw to the theme song then. That's all you need to do. Oh, you didn't send me the theme song. Oh, well, Uh, maybe someone will do it in post. Here's your theme song. Here's You've this. been a part of the Toncast today. <laughs> My name is Tier Penn, your host, and we were joined today by Todd Robert Anderson, who is still funny, 
looks more or less the same as he did in high school, at least in as far as any of us could say that we did, and um, bamboozled me into hosting an episode of the Ton cast today. <laughs> I'm still not funny. <laughs> I, I was bamboozled. I, dis I disagree. I totally disagree. 